Hello, and welcome to The Great Collide, where we explore the intersection between politics and faith. I'm Leanne Noland. And I'm Jasmine Taylor. Today, we're going to step into our Wayback Machine to talk about politics in the church 150 years ago, when Reverend David Swing, pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, was tried for heresy. Many of the accusations against Swing still divide Christians today. That's right. And our guest today has written a play based on Reverend Swing's trial. Kat Evans is a playwright, actor, and member of Fourth Presbyterian Church. Her play, The Perseverance of the Saints, will hold a stage reading on May 5th and 7th at the Chicago Temple. What was going on in the Presbyterian Church and, and in Chicago at that time? Chicago, 1874, three years after the great Chicago fire. So a huge amount of Chicago had burned and Fourth Presbyterian Church, the entire congregation had lost its homes. In addition to its building, they had just built and opened a new church edifice and the day before the Chicago fire. So they had it one day and then it burned down. Along every congregant lost their home as well. The north side was was terribly, terribly obliterated. And so in those next three years, a lot of powerful people did everything they could to rebuild Chicago. Money came pouring in from all, all over the world, all over the country, you know, small charities, big charities, other cities. They were donating money in, in huge amounts and tiny amounts. And other folks who are more powerful businessmen, they immediately went to their, if they had insurance on the East Coast, then they actually paid up. If they had insurance in Chicago, they did not. Uh, but if they were able to cash in on their insurance policies, they ran into rebuild. And so money was flying into Chicago and they had this chance to start the city over. And that meant for, for some, it was a huge opportunity. It was also a really rough time for anybody who was very poor. And so the, the aftermath of the Chicago fire was quite fraught. And what makes it slightly into the play, it's was that the presidents of the Relief and Aid Society, so the, the group that was in charge of distributing all aid in Chicago after the Chicago fire was headed up by Henry King, who was a, a fourth Presbyterian congregant and elder. The Relief and Aid Society was a group of businessmen who told the mayor, don't trust the aldermen to distribute aid. Don't trust your own elected representatives. We, the business community, we know how to distribute resources. You should just trust us with this. And the mayor did it. He handed over all aid distribution to this group of businessmen who have their president of their executive committee was on Fourth Presbyterian Church. Uh, meanwhile, Fourth Church sent their minister, Reverend Swing, to the East Coast to appeal for funds, um, specifically to, to many. One of the noting, noted people that he went to was Reverend Beecher in Brooklyn. He was huge and instrumental in the abolitionist movement. And you've probably heard of the Beecher family from Harriet Beecher Stowe. She was his sister. And most of the Beechers were, at least the Beecher men, were preachers. Um, Henry Ward Breacher was this one in Brooklyn who was friends with Swing, and he was very instrumental both in the abolitionist movement 10 years before and at this moment when he helped Swing and Forth raise money for their new building. 
1874, Forth is flourishing. Reverend Swing has some of the most eloquent and exciting rhetoric. He inspires people of all walks, at least of all the walks that may walk into a Presbyterian church at the time. Uh, and he is theologically incredibly inclusive. Forth is getting around 800 people every morning, every Sunday morning, which is just unheard of. For our listeners, those who are really steeped in church history, tell us about how the old and the new school Presbyterians, and tell us about the controversies over Calvinism and why it's bad for Reverend Swing to associate with the Unitarians. Because Swing is massively popular and his publishing is going all over the country, some of his tenets involve cooperation with other denominations. Now, this wasn't terribly new, even on the frontier, a hundred years before Presbyterians and Congregationalists had agreed to work together on the frontier before Chicago was even incorporated as a city. There's tends to be this pattern of when there's huge poverty or when it's really, really difficult, we agree to work together. And then as soon as there's prosperity, we stop getting along. And so then denominations fracture or they, they stop working together. So at this point in time, Presbyterians are doing great in Chicago. Methodists are doing great. There's a lot of great denominations. There's a Baptist movement. There's Episcopals. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And Swing is at the forefront of saying, we all should talk. We all should publish together. We all should debate. And one of the most prominent Unitarians is Reverend Collier, who is also on the Relief and Aid Society. So that means he's very rich, very prominent, very important person. And he and Swing both trade editorials, sniping at each other in the paper, but they also go out to dinner. They're friends. And they disagree publicly, but they also show that they get along well. And Reverend Collier was also one of the first preachers to preach publicly after the Chicago fires. He's got his own fame. He's got his own success. But some folks, especially on the East Coast from Princeton, uh, the Presbyterians in Princeton, they're very unhappy that Swing is so friendly with Unitarians, and they believe that he is watering down Presbyterian heritage and Presbyterian doctrine. They also come from what you might call the old school of Presbyterianism. Now, many thought already by the time we get to 1874 that this divide is over. Presbyterianism had already split. Old school and new school had split churches entirely. But then in 1871, they got back together. So they resolved their differences. It took a lot of conferences. It took a lot of arguing. Now, let's get into politics. A lot of the old school, which involved some literalism, very strict adherence to the Westminster Confession of Faith, they also often happened to be on the Confederate side of the Civil War. They tended to be slave sympathizers. They tended to go with ideas about the Bible that meant that because that was a historical context in the Bible, it should be fine today, things like slavery. And so by the time we got to the Civil War, you know, a lot of denominations had left that kind of thought. Old school also had to split when the Civil War came. And so the old school that was left in the North 
they were left without a lot of their people. They lost a lot of old school to the South. They were without their resources. And so some people believe that that was the reason old school reunited with new school. They just didn't have enough people or enough resources to stay afloat. That's a theory. And so here we are in 1874, three years after old school and new school have merged back into one Presbyterian church, at least in the North. And yet they are arguing so hard on theology and the old school or the older old school representatives are so angry about what Swing is doing that they decide he's got to go. Who accused Reverend Swing of heresy? And then what happened in the trial? Swing was accused by Francis Landy Patton. He had been handpicked by Cyrus McCormick to head up the chair of theology at what became McCormick Theological Seminary. At the time, it was just the Presbyterian Seminary of the Northwest. But eventually, it's what we now know as McCormick Seminary today. And we call it that because McCormick brought it to Chicago and funded every salary of every professor. He very much single-handedly, with the McCormick fortune, made that seminary happen, brought it here, and made it sustainable. And that's why eventually they named it after him. So McCormick, although he had a lot going on, he uh, Cyrus McCormick, the improver of the Reaper, who was you know one of those billionaires, you know at the level of Rockefeller, which is why so much of Chicago is named after him. He, he's a big deal. His fortune was massive, and he and his wife Nettie Fowler McCormick were huge in rebuilding Chicago after the fire. But McCormick was an old school man. And in fact, he was definitely on the side of the South in the, the, in the Civil War previously. Now, he didn't actually stick around in the country during the Civil War. He went to Europe. But when he came back and the war was over, McCormick worked really hard to rebuild the South, help with reconstruction efforts and fund money into the South. And he also really wanted to help old school theology in the Presbyterian Church. So he handpicked all of the professors, all of the reverends that teach at the seminary, and fills it with old school men. Francis Landy Patton was one of those from Princeton, and he was a zealot. Francis Landy Patton believed in his righteousness, and he was a meticulous lawyer of a pastor and was very happy to pursue heresy trials. Swing has all these publications. His sermons are out there in print. It's pretty easy for Patton to cherry pick from Swing's sermons and say, this is a violation of what Presbyterians believe. This is a violation. This is a violation. He had two major charges, but one of the charges alone had 26 specifications, and that's each an, a piece of evidence. He is trying to prove that Swing has departed from Presbyterian standards. So one of Swing's crimes was that he wrote a eulogy of John Stuart Mill, and he said nice things about him. And Patton thought no Presbyterian could do that. You cannot speak well of an atheist after they're dead. And another thing Swing did was deliver a lecture in support of a Unitarian chapel. They were going to build a chapel in the name of Mary Collier, and they needed money, and Swing was very popular, and they asked him to give a lecture, and he did. 
He didn't take any money for himself. He helped them raise money. And Patton said, you are aiding in Unitarians. Unitarians don't believe in Jesus Christ as the son of God. That is absolute heresy. You are aiding and abetting the enemy. So that those were some of the specifications uh, he accused Swing of. I said there were many. He was very meticulous in his charges. What was the role of women in the church and how did Fourth's members react to the accusations over on that heresy, of that heresy? Thank you. Uh, because this is what I chose to write the play about, was more about the ladies of the congregation. At the time, women were, by their own admission, and I think a lot of the populace would say too, were the heart and soul of the church. They could not preach. They really couldn't teach. They certainly couldn't vote. Not in church synods, uh, certainly not in the country either. But women often were the head of what we call benevolence. They worked so hard to help people. If you look at the relief and aid documentation from after the Chicago fire, you'll see pictures of men sitting around a table discussing problems, and you'll see women handing things out, being on the front lines, getting actual supplies to actual people. And benevolence was women's jurisdiction for the last many, many decades, right? It, the, the idea of charity, the idea of good works, the idea of helping others. Now, of course, we are talking about women who already have a lot of privilege. They tended to be married, they tended to be wealthy, and they tended to do all of this for free. It, they were, anyways, full-time jobs, but because they had wealthy husbands, this was what they got, to, what they chose to do with their time. But after the Civil War, there was a lot of lot of difficulties. And as benevolence became more and more prominent and professionalized and more accountability was demanded of how are you giving out aid? Who are you giving aid to? Can you trust the person you gave aid to be using it correctly? Uh, benevolence began to be taken over a lot more by men. There was this double-edged double-edged sword and that in some ways it was professionalized and that occasionally workers got paid to do the work of benevolence but it also meant the ladies who'd been doing it for decades lost their control over it um, and so groups like the relief and aid society all men uh, tended to take it over so the ladies of fourth were like this right they had been doing benevolence for forever it was a huge part of Fort's mission. The ladies were doing so much to try to help the poor of Chicago, the epidemics of Chicago, trying to get beds and blankets and supplies and medicine and food to anyone who needed it, especially women who often qualify for aid under the Relief and Aid Society. So that's what the women were doing. How did Fourth Fort's congregants react? They were enraged. They could not believe that anyone dared say anything bad about their guy. They were angry at the East Coast. They were indignant. They thought the charges were ridiculous. They thought the East Coast was jealous of Swing's success and of his prominence. And they absolutely rallied around him. They thought that the Chicago Presbytery would dismiss the charges as frivolous and ridiculous but the Chicago Presbytery did not. They first appointed a committee to review the charges, and then 
They demanded some revisions and patent revised the charges and submitted them again. And we went to trial. Yeah, this is such a fascinating story and piece of history here. So what what parallels do you see between Swing's trial and then the split that we have between progressive and conservative Christians today? The pattern that I mentioned earlier of that, you know, when we are in a humanitarian crisis, we often are able to come together, at least briefly. And then it seems like as soon as there's some prosperity, as soon as there is a little bit of survival ensured, then it, we just manage to start fighting again. And we can't seem to get along, uh, which is, that seems to be repeating itself all through American history. The Methodist Church has just had a split. The PCUSA, of which I, to which I belong, uh, we still argue day and night over many, many things. Uh, there are many Protestant denominations that are still arguing with each other. And dissent, I believe, is part of community. It is necessary. Community is messy. Family is messy. And I believe it should, multiple perspectives is so important. It, that's one reason I do choose Presbyterianism is it's collective wisdom or the, the belief in collective wisdom and the belief in debate. But our history shows that it doesn't take much before Christians kick each other out or they leave if they have the choice to leave. Uh, we have a lot of denominations throughout history, and I guess I'll, I'll include Catholicism in that too, which makes Christianity more coercive, right? You must believe, you must go along with this or bad things will happen to you. Um, and in earlier centuries, right, we had people being tortured or murdered um, if they didn't adhere to certain standards. I mean, by the time we get to 1874, we're not quite likely to have torture, but we certainly have people saying we're not allowed to be friends with them. We're not allowed to dine with them. You're not allowed to cooperate with them in any way. And we still have them. And of course, social media and the internet brings out the worst and the ugliest in folks when they're able to be relatively anonymous and don't have to be in space with others. They can be at the nastiest. Uh, that's not to say that people in real spaces aren't mean to each other as well. And that has happened in Presbyterian synods and every other, I'm sure. So I suppose the biggest parallel is that People fight hard over their turf. And while I actually believe that dissent is good and that messy is normal, uh, I grieve a lot over how ugly it gets. And I wanted to examine what that might feel like in a particular community. And I had this historical story in front of me and I thought, I think this story is ready to be told. So what do you hope people come away with after they see your play? I hope they will check in with their own community. I hope they will be a little brave to say if they disagree with their neighbor. And I hope that they're brave to remain neighbors and not run away from each other or say, we can't talk anymore. And there are so many degrees of disagreeing. I understand that. I know so many people who've lost, whose families have split in the last many years over politics. And I understand that sometimes people's absolute safety is at risk due to what their family members or their neighbors are doing and saying. So I, I don't ever mean to say stay no matter what. Uh, that would never be my message. Uh, but with this play, I am trying to examine who has a choice to leave 
who has a choice whether they can leave and stay, whose safety is really at stake. And if you have safety, what is your moral obligation to the community to say that you disagree or walk away? And what is it to be faithful? And so I hope folks that watch this play consider those questions and reach out to their neighbors. Nice. So I want you to tell our listeners how they can stay up to date on the play's premiere and get tickets and all of that. Well, the great news is tickets are free. Uh, this will be an absolutely free event. So be streamed. So if you can't make it to Chicago, um, you will be able to catch it on uh, Chicago Temple First United Methodist Church YouTube channel. The readings will be on May 5th and 7th. May the 5th is a Sunday afternoon. It'll be at 3 o'clock. And Tuesday, May 7th, it'll be at 7 o'clock. My website, catevansllc.com, will have all those details if you want to check on those dates and those times. Is there anything else you want to make sure people know about what you're doing, about the play or any of that? I think anyone who likes history will be interested in this play. Certainly, if you are of any interest in church history or Protestant history or theology at all, you will be nerding out to this play. Uh, but I hope to bring in any Chicago history buffs, the Chicago History Museum. Uh, we are such a history-rich city. And... There are always politics at play in every issue in history. So I think politics junkies will love this play as well. Uh, but most of all, this is a story of fairly privileged people in a very particular time. And I've chosen to write the play about some of the voices that would not have been heard then. The main characters in the play are the ladies of the church and how this trial where they cannot vote, they cannot speak, they cannot even attend, but it affects them. It affects their lives. It affects what they're able to do. And I feel like that is relevant today. There are things that we feel powerless over that greatly affect our world that we care about. Uh, and so I hope to have folks just to come to hear that story and have it resonate with them and help them feel less helpless and more likely to reach out to their communities uh, so they feel less helpless. Thank you, Kat, for bringing us this fascinating moment in church history. Thank you for bringing that to life. Be sure to download our Great Collide episodes. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a review. And most importantly, tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all the links. The Great Collide is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago, in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm Jasmine Taylor. And I'm Leanne Noland. Keep, Keep the, the faith. faith.